For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, and we'll be coming out with two podcast episodes relating to employment. This episode, Judy interviews Meg O'Connell, the founder and CEO of Global Disability Inclusion. They discuss the various ways Meg has worked with companies to improve their disability inclusion efforts. As always, you can find the research and resources referenced throughout this conversation in the description of this podcast episode. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, because it's National Disability Employment Awareness Month, we invited Meg O'Connell to meet with us. Meg, I would love it if you could give us a little bit of background about who you are and how you actually got involved in the issue of employment of disabled people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Judy. It's nice to be here. I'm Meg O'Connell. I'm the CEO and founder of Global Disability Inclusion. So how I got started, gosh, it's been a long and winding road, um, but I've been doing disability inclusion work for the bulk of my career. I started out as a young bank teller learning sign language and started having a following of deaf customers driving 30, 40 miles just for someone to talk to. So that really sparked my journey in disability inclusion. And like every good 20-something, I wrote a letter to the CEO and said, you know, I've got some really good ideas. This was in Richmond, Virginia at the time. And of course, our close proximity to Gallaudet. I put together, here's the number of households, here's the average household income. If we just get 10% of those households, we will increase our revenue. And whether he thought it was a great idea or a little nutty that this bank teller was sending him a memo on how to improve business, <laughs> he invited me to come meet with him. And that began really my journey. What bank was this? It, it's currently SunTrust. At the time, it was Crestar Bank. And it's had a few iterations, and now it's Truest. So from there, we actually created the first videotape series. And of course, I'm aging myself by saying videotape. <laughs> that was done completely in American Sign Language on banking services. And we used members of the deaf community as our stars. There were no hearing people in the videos. Of course, it had sign language and closed captioning. Uh, the only hearing people were actual bank customer service representatives. So that really started my journey. And I spent eight years at the bank working on disability inclusion. And it started with the deaf and hard of hearing customers, but branched out to everybody else. Do you have any idea why you were drawn to doing this? Um, a couple of reasons. You know, I grew up spending my summers in St. Augustine, Florida. It's where I live now. Uh, and the School for the Deaf and Blind is here. 
So I was exposed early on to people with disabilities in the community, seeing people signing at mass uh, when we'd go on Sundays and just seeing people in the community. And I saw some of the disparities that people with disabilities face. I also have a disability myself. I have epilepsy. So I have that personal connection to what's going on and, and what's happening in our workplaces. So I knew there were people not being served by corporations. And if I had an opportunity to help change that, why not? So when did you set up Global Disability Inclusion? So about 10 years ago at this point, after I left the bank, I joined Booz Allen Hamilton and was there for 10 years as a consultant and also part of their HR team and was really wanting to get back into my focus of disability inclusion. I ran the employee resource group for people with disabilities when I was at Booz Allen. I had some smaller projects, but not enough to really fuel my soul. And then I went to work for a nonprofit for a couple of years that was focused on disability. Loved that experience, but was frustrated by it because I knew the amount of money that companies were investing in diversity efforts, but they weren't spending those dollars on disability. And nonprofits are all about fundraising. So if they can get funds and not actually have to do any work and the company's getting a pass because they're like, oh, we wrote a check, but we're not actually creating better workplaces. I found that really frustrating. So that's when I started Global Disability Inclusion because I'm a recovering consultant, right? So I knew it could be done better. <laughs> and uh, so we've we've had a great time and had some amazing customers and uh, amazing partners that have helped us on this journey. So why global? Well, I did global work when I was at Booz Allen. And so I had some exposure to that. and. Disability isn't a U.S.-centric issue. It's a global issue. And I wanted to send that message to people that this is not just something that's happening in the U.S. We work with a lot of multinational companies. So it had to be not just a U.S.-centric issue, had to be in all of their locations. You can't just do a good job in the U.S., if you have employees in Europe, in China, in Asia, you have to do good for everybody. So your organization is now about 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about not only why uh, you created it, what was your intended outcomes? How have you achieved them so far? Wow, that's a loaded question. Really, it's about we want to create better workplaces for people with disabilities. And with my HR background, I know the infrastructure supports that are created to help people in the workplace. And those in large part are non-existent for people with disabilities. So I knew I had the opportunity to talk with people who were in the workplaces making changes and speak their language because I had done it and really help them see where there were gaps for people with disabilities. And I think we've done, you know, an okay job. There's always more to do. We're certainly not finished. Every day brings a new challenge and a new opportunity with companies. And, you know, we've had some fantastic clients and, you know, we're at the point which is enviable, I think, that their clients we won't take. 
because they're just not ready and they're just not wanting to do the bigger work and the bigger projects that have more impact. And so we'll share contact information of folks that can help them because we want to work on the big projects with the big outcomes. So when looking at a company, what do you want that company to look like in order for you to work with them? I've got my favorite client right now in 30 years of doing this, and it's it's Michael's, um, the craft store. And the reason why I love them, it's they have the culture of what what's the phrase that 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 comedians use? Yes, and that's what Michael's is about. A lot of companies are focused on we're fearful. What about the legal concerns? We can't be in violation of the ADA. I mean, there's they operate from a position of fear rather than a position of how do we make this better and what else should we be doing and what can we be doing? And that's the kind of culture that Michaels has. So when you think about companies that uh, you have worked with, what would you say some of the most dramatic changes have been? I think the biggest ones are usually the attitudinal changes, the realization of dispelling those really old and outdated myths of people with disabilities that shockingly still exist, right? I mean, Judy, I know you have this emotion too of like, how many times do I have to have this conversation about what people with disabilities can actually do and achieve? And I will retire when I don't have to have that conversation anymore, (laughs) but I know you're still at it. You're going to be older than Methuselah. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I think you're right. But those are the biggest changes. And actually, we're seeing some real movement, as you know, with companies like Microsoft, uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, setting up, you know, chief accessibility officers. These are things that are creating massive change within uh, corporations themselves, but also setting new standards for other companies to follow. So I'm really excited about the companies that are digging deep. You know, Northrop Grumman's another one that's doing really great in the disability inclusion space. So we typically use those as examples of the bar that we're setting of what companies should achieve and what they should go after. Are you working with other organizations that have a similar objective to yours, like Disability Inn and the Valuable 500 groups like that? Do you work with them? Yeah, we're expert uh, resource partners to the Valuable 500. Um, so we, we've been working with them for a couple of years now. So so we're excited about that. We have done some work previously with Disability In, but we're not doing anything with them right now. You know, we we love all organizations. You know, I really operate in the model. It's like, we're not competitors. We're all after the same goal. So let's all work together. So if you think about one or two companies beyond Michael's, Um, Do you have one or two that you could mention and how you worked with them and the changes that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been working for the last couple of years with the Society of Human Resource Management. We started on a journey with them a few years ago, just in information sharing about disability inclusion. And one of the pieces that we know is that when companies get interested in disability inclusion, they go to their HR team. And the HR team typically doesn't know anything about disability inclusion. And the message that we wanted to present, not only to SHRM, but to its members, is that there are competencies 
that need to be developed and understood around disability inclusion. It's not just a, a feel-good initiative. So uh, the Kessler Foundation actually funded the creation of what's called the Employing Abilities at Work Certificate. It's like other diversity certifications, um, but this one is on disability. So it kind of goes right to my sweet spot of HR, right, of looking at the employment life cycle, where the company touches all of their employees, and how are they focusing on disability inclusion in that. So um, it talks about sourcing, recruiting, onboarding, performance management, all of those things that happen with employees. Uh, it's a 10-hour training. It's self-paced. It's free. And while it's geared to HR professionals, anybody can take it. So if you've got a hiring manager that's interested in disability inclusion, there's great tips and tools there. We talk about, you know, not just the ADA, but CRPD. And for our audience, CRPD is the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And it is a UN treaty. And one of the reasons why your organization, Global Disability Inclusion, is you understand things like the CRPD. Yes, yes. So, and we want everyone to understand that, right? And, you know, the thing that I love most about the CRPD is the shift in the definition. And that's what we're trying to get people to understand that it's not, it's not a problem with the individual, it's a problem with the environment. And we have to make the environments accessible for everybody. And it's not just physical spaces, it's our digital spaces, and it's our company cultures. And how do we create better workplaces that work for everybody? You know, one of the challenges very much is getting human resources to really understand beyond what the law requires. Obviously, they need to understand what the law requires. But do you believe that through the work that you're doing with SHRM, because SHRM is clearly a very important organization. They work with so many other companies. How much progress do you think has been made and what more do you think needs to happen? Gosh, a, a lot more needs, needs to happen. The certificate program actually just launched in June. So we're only just getting started. So there have been, you know, I think 3,000 people that have taken the course so far. So still, there are 300,000 members within SHARM globally. Um, so it's just a drop in the bucket at this point of who's taken it. So we're going to continue to promote it. We're continuing to help SHRM define their strategy around disability inclusion and what that looks like. And I think the more we can work with organizations like SHRM that have a broad reach and are well-respected, really signaling to the world that disability inclusion is a profession and we need to understand what that means. It is often someone's passion as well, but again, there are skills and competencies that need to be developed. So much more work to do. If we could also look at the state of disability employment engagement. Yeah. You did this study with a company called Mercer. Maybe you could tell the audience who Mercer is and what the intention of doing this study was. Yeah, it, uh, Mercer, first of all, is the largest HR consulting firm on the planet. So they have an HR lens as well, too. Years ago, when I was at Booz Allen, I worked with this gentleman on our employee engagement data at, at the company. And we were one of the few companies that actually asked 
disability as part of the demographic questions. But what we ran into was so few people were checking the box, we didn't have a lot of data and the percentages were so small, they were considered, you know, statistically insignificant, right? So I began asking questions uh, with my partner, Dr. Pete Rutigliano, you know, what, what are other companies doing? What does this look like? So really, he and I started as a side hustle gig, whatever you want to call it, uh, to understand what that looked like. Uh, he has a stepdaughter with autism, so he was interested personally in what is work going to look like for her. So we began studying, looking at the Mercer Global data sets, and uh, we spent 10 years looking at this data to see how it was changing and evolving and what did the intersectionalities look like. And we produced our report last year, and we found that people with disabilities don't have such a great workplace experience compared to those without disabilities. I know that's no surprise to you, Judy. <laughs> Maybe you could speak a little bit more about what that exactly means. Yeah. So what, what we found, there are a series of engagement questions, the things that um, companies ask their employees of questions like, you know, I have freedom to use my judgment in getting my job done. There was a 12 percentage point difference between people with disabilities and people without disabilities. And for a point of reference, a five percentage point difference is a call to action. So if you're comparing gender and there's a five percentage point difference, we know companies are spending tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars to lessen that gap. Why? Because they want to create equitable experiences regardless of their gender. But the most startling thing we found when we looked at the Mercer database is that 90% of companies look at gender differences, 75% look at race and ethnicity, but only 4% of companies are even looking at disability as a diversity segment. So that's a problem. We're the world's largest minority group and the one getting the least amount of attention. So there are a lot of metrics out there that companies are measuring themselves against, but no one's talking to their employees. Nobody's asking them, what do you think about our policies, programs, procedures? What's working for you? Another big gap was the question, employees can express their ideas and views without negative consequences. That had a 12 percentage point difference again. So it's not a high scorer in general. People without disabilities, it was 69%. People with disabilities, it was 57%, so even lower. So you've got People with disabilities saying, I feel micromanaged, I feel controlled in the work, uh, and I can't express ideas or creativity without feeling that they're going to be negative consequences. So when we talk about diverse workplaces, we have to create environments that are safe for everybody. And if you think about it in just the numbers game, Statistically, 15 to 20% of your employee population are likely people with disabilities. That's larger than almost any other diversity segment. So we've got to get companies paying attention to the employee experience and what it's like for people with disabilities. When these questions are being asked of employees by race or gender, do you know if disability is a part of that? set of questions or be 
a totally separate set of questions? Typically, it's a group of demographic questions where they'll ask age, race, gender, and disability. So we do have some intersectionality data that actually we're coming out with this month as well, too, um, from our studies. Uh, and from this, we've also created um, what's called Amplify, which is the first disability climate and culture survey that companies can give to their employees that asks questions about disability in the workplace. Are any companies using the, these yet? They are. The survey will run this month, October 12th through the 30th. And of course, I can't share who's taking it, <laughs> but we do have a handful of companies taking it this round. We run it twice a year. And the feedback that we're getting has been really positive because we ask questions of both people with disabilities and people without disabilities. So we're getting both the lived experience and what's the perception of people with disabilities. Are they treated with dignity and respect? Do they have the same opportunities for advancement? Um, do you talk about disability inclusion among your team and your workplace? How is accessibility addressed? Um, we ask about self-ID and accommodations and disclosure and is it safe to talk about your disability at work? Do you feel safe to do so? Those types of things. So we're, we're getting some really good data. Are there examples of companies that you could share beyond what you shared who have been taking this issue more seriously and whether or not they've seen an increase in the number of people identifying as having a disability? And has that enabled them to have more honest discussions within the company about what is working, what's not working, what employees are suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Sabre is a company that we're working with as well, too. And they are one that is coming in this round. So I know they're comfortable with me sharing. Um, so they're excited about it because disability hasn't really been talked about within their organization. They are a global organization and they're having different sets of conversations, um, not only in the U.S., but in their other regions uh, in Europe and in China. And these are conversations that are new to this organization that just haven't really happened. So they've started an employee resource group for people with disabilities. They've started education and training programs. Um, they've been promoting the Employing Abilities at Work certificate program internally. So they're really trying to, to take hold of what's happening and learn as much as they can about the workplace experiences. So as they start their journey, we sometimes hear from companies, oh, we're not far enough along. We're not ready to take that survey yet. Um, and I say, it's actually the perfect time if you haven't done a lot, because you can get some really good data at the outset of where employees are feeling the pain points. Is it accessibility? Is it culture? Is it your policy around accommodations and the medical documentation that's required? Is it too onerous? You know, you get some real practical data of what employees think about working at your company. Why do you think, uh, especially for U.S. companies, where 504 and ADA, I mean, 504 since 1973 and ADA since 1990, plus 501 and other state laws. Why do you think, while there's definitely improvement 
that has been going on with many companies. Why do you think we're still lagging far behind other employee groups? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had the answer to that because I think we would, you know, be able to jump light years ahead. We get compared a lot, as you know, to the LGBT community because they moved from a don't ask, don't tell to loud and proud. And I think that's what's happening with us now, right? It was very much, you know, I can't tell you how many times people told me not to disclose my disability. You don't have to, don't disclose. And for me, I was like, why not? And I learned very early on from my parents that when I was diagnosed, they sent me around by myself to tell all my teachers that I had epilepsy. And I was the only kid that I knew that had anything in school that, you know, and they brought in somebody from the Epilepsy Foundation to teach the class. And, you know, from that experience, I learned early on that how I presented myself as a person with epilepsy was a direct reflection in how people treated me. So I wasn't going to hide it. I wasn't going to be afraid of it. And it was also a workplace safety issue. So I think what 508 and 504 and 501 have done is change the conversations that we're having around disability. And people are now, you know, we've got the millennials and the Gen Zs that grew up with the ADA and all the things that you helped us fight for that are disability is not a dirty word. And, you know, I'm going to be loud and proud about who I am. And all of these things are changing workplace conversations and quite frankly, workplace demands. What employees want from their employers, what employees with disabilities want from their employers. Is this study the first one of its kind that was done and who funded it? It is the first study of its kind. No one uh, previously has been looking at disability employee engagement. It was funded by myself and or by our company and the partnership with Mercer. So obviously it's Mercer's data. So they had the time and the resources. So it was the two of us and our longstanding partnership that brought this to fruition. Do you share this data with new companies that you're beginning to work with? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a free download on our website. So we want to share it with, with the world to really take notice and hope that this data and data that we get from the Amplify survey helps companies realize where changes need to happen. And some changes will be easy, right? Updating your accommodations policy. Other changes will take time because they're cultural in nature. And we know it often takes two to five years to really create cultural change. Um, so that's what we're hoping. We want to create better workplaces. And I think it's very important really to put a time frame on change. And I would say two to five years, depending on the changes that you're trying to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> And I think in disability, you know, when we look at employment, there's employment within the company, but obviously there's so many other contributing factors that some disabled people are presented with. I'm wondering whether any of the work that you're doing is looking at the issue of the impact of COVID. I know that many companies are still allowing people to work at home many days a week. One thing that I've been concerned about is for people who need accommodations 
and whether the accommodations they would get on the work site are accommodations that they would get in their home. And I have not done any study. It's quite anecdotal. But anecdotally, it looks to me that the kind of supports that people might get at work, like readers or personal assistants, whatever, it's never easy to get, but that it's been more difficult uh, when someone needs assistance out of their home, which is their workplace for one to five days a week. Right. You know, we haven't done any studies on that. And it's an interesting question that you raise and it's worth the research, right? Because I think there's this perception, oh, if you're a person with a disability, you probably have all your supports already at home. And so you can just work from home because you've already got those in place and we don't have to provide them. So I think it's a strong hypothesis that the companies are thinking, but we haven't done any, any research on it specifically. All right. So I think another issue is human resources is really no different than any other entity within a business. They have different responsibilities, clearly, and I understand why they're so essential, but they also are really the heartbeat of these changes. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at, as you said, two to five years to make critical cultural changes. Beyond HR, what do you believe companies need to be doing? Like, what is the role of leadership in putting forward the messages that we're discussing? It's such a great question. And leadership plays a critical role, right? I mean, it comes down from the top and we need leaders setting goals and outcomes and impact around disability inclusion. Uh, it needs to be a clear component of the business strategy. And what does that look like? Are we creating new products and services? Um, what, what is our plan to be better in the disability inclusion space in the next five years? Not our end game, but what do we want to achieve in this time frame that tells our employees and our customers that we're focused on disability inclusion? And we don't have enough companies doing that. We don't have enough leaders coming forward and identifying as somebody with a disability. I mean, thank God for Richard Branson, but we need more of those coming forward and talking about their disability and how they've been. Right. I mean, he's done such a great job. Now LinkedIn has dyslexic thinking as a skill. I mean, we need to be promoting disability inclusion and we use the hashtag a lot, disabled and capable. That needs to be part of the conversation, that leaders with disabilities need to come forward and say, I'm confident, I'm successful, I'm capable, and disability, so what? So I think this leads nicely into what do you see as some of the largest gaps in knowledge of employers and coworkers? And why do you think that gap exists? Gosh, I think the largest gap is still the attitudinal barriers, the outdated thinking that we've already talked about. And I think it's been in part because we haven't been having good workplace disability conversations. And there's been a lot of hiding. There's been almost a lot of shame. Don't come forward unless you have to. If you have to ask for the least disruptive thing possible, and we've got to stop treating disability that way. And I think that's been some of the gaps that we've had. Partly my feeling is also that the media has not been playing 
a role in really integrating disabled people into everything, books, television, news, films, on and on. And this absence, I think very much also doesn't allow people to learn about disabled people in the same way that I think people are learning more about other diverse communities. And it's happening slowly. So one never wants to say it's not happening at all, but it isn't happening anywhere near as rapidly as it needs to. And I think, you know, when you discuss two to five years for certain changes to take place, it does seem to me that we need an approach which is clearly driven by the employer and the company. Mm -hmm. But likewise, how we educate disabled people also about having a higher expectation that they have a right to work. Have you seen any of the companies that you're working with in their public facing, like for customers, integrating what they're doing naturally on the issue of employment of disabled people, as well as their customer base? Yeah, it's, you know, Michael's is a, is a great example, right? They have a program called Makers Like Me. Um, it's all about, you know, we welcome everybody to our craft table and they do online classes that are done in sign language and have captioning and, you know, people with varying dis disabilities. Um, they're working on supplies. What should we have in our stores that people with disabilities might need? Um, so your point about representation and the media is, is really clear and really strong because, you know, we've seen it over and over again with all other diversity groups, right? Uh, representation matters, leaders coming forward and talking about disability. Uh, Michaels also has a brand ambassador, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, who has autism and he's a painter and he sells his paintings for tens of thousands of dollars on Instagram. And so, you know, they're really trying to look at this holistically. It's not just the employee experience. What do our customers want? How do we promote makers like me and bring in artists with disabilities and feature them in our commercials and in our promotional materials? So I think you're right. It's not a, you know, one size fits all. And it's not like, oh, we're tackling this with our employees. So we're doing good. It's about all parts of your business and how do you bring disability inclusion into those? Two groups that I think about often, uh, one are youth and the others are individuals who have been in the workforce but acquire a disability for one or more reasons. So looking at youth, I'm wondering, are any of the programs that you're involved with encouraging employers to look at things like internships and mentorships? Yeah, Michaels is getting a lot of play on this call, right? Because they're they're doing a little bit of everything. Um, they are working with the school systems in transition programs and how do we bring kids in early, even if it's some part-time employment. Sometimes the school systems say, oh, let's do like a work tryout or a work study. And they're like, no, we're paying people. If they're in our stores, they're going to be paid. We're not doing any sort of you know, volunteering. Um, so they really get it from an equity standpoint and really targeting, uh, trying to target our youth for future employees. Do you feel that youth of today 
high school, college, are being trained for the workforce of today and tomorrow? Gosh, that's, I mean, I would say probably not. I've had a couple of colleges and universities as clients and and they're difficult and they're tough environments for students with disabilities. And, you know, they're okay from a disabled student service, so, you know, providing note takers or accommodations, but the campuses themselves, nine times out of 10, aren't accessible. And there are huge gaps in inclusion on college campuses. And I think they're not doing a good enough job to prepare them for what's ahead in the workplaces because they're having to fight so hard for the equity on college campuses. And I guess maybe the flip side of that is, yes, that is preparing them because they may have some of those same fight in the workplaces. <laughs> right. But, you know, we need to make our workplaces better is the bottom line. It shouldn't be a battle to have accessible workplaces, to ask for an accommodation, to talk about what you need to be successful in the workplaces with a disability. We've got to make those conversations easier, more beneficial for both the employee and the employer. So this program goes out to a general audience, meaning it's not HR focused. Right. It's just the average person and maybe, you know, disabled people also that have an interest in this but hopefully not just all disabled people. So what are some of the messages that you would like to leave with our audience about what they should be looking for and what more they can do on helping to advance inclusion and advancement of disabled people in the world of work? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the most important thing is everyone, every single person has a responsibility to create an inclusive culture when it comes to disability. So it can be as simple as, as you start every meeting, does anybody need an accommodation? Understanding that sometimes you may need to send things out in advance. You can't, you know, expect if you've got a team member with dyslexia to hand out a document at a meeting and ask everybody to quickly read it and be able to, to give concrete feedback on it. Being aware of where your accessible spaces are, whether it's parking spaces or if you regularly go out to team meetings, what are the 10 places around your building that are accessible that you know will work for everyone on the team? Or if you have a visitor show up, you're not scrambling to try to find an accessible restaurant to take them to. So everyone has some accessibility requirement and responsibility. Uh, understand how to make your PDFs accessible. All of those things that we do in the workplace, and Microsoft does a great job when having all those tools to check your accessibility, investigate the accessibility of this document. Everyone needs to take time to do those things. Um, so I think that's one of the most important things is that it's not the company's responsibility. Yes, as a whole, they are responsible, but every individual within the company has a responsibility for disability inclusion. So you've got to find out where you can play your part to ensure disability inclusion is happening. And I think the other piece, there's a lot of focus right now on headcount. How many people with disabilities do we have? Are we reaching the 7% target, you know, set by 508? 503. 503. I'm sorry. Yes. So there's a lot of focus on, you know, counting heads, but nobody's talking about what's inside those heads, right? Let's have conversations with people with disabilities about what's working and what's not. 
and really drive to change that. Do you have any other activities or what activities do you have planned for the National Disability Employment Awareness Month this month of October? Yeah, we um, it's one of our busiest months, which is is for you and most people in in our space. We have more than a dozen training sessions and speaking engagements um, this month. So we'll be spending a lot of time doing trainings and webinars. And, you know, I had one yesterday, you know, I've, I've got a couple more this week as well. So it's a good time for people to get interested in disability inclusion and also expand what they're currently doing. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience before we end? No, just thanks for having me. And you should wear red more, Judy. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And for the audience, we're putting information up so that you can go to Meg's organization's website and look at the two reports that we've been discussing. Thanks so much, Meg, for working with us on this. Thanks, Judy. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. It's been a few episodes since we've done an Ask Judy, actually, so I'm excited to get back into it. And we have a great question fitting for ending with this episode with Meg O'Connell. So this question comes from Kyla Keenan, and they asked, how can we prevent ableism in the workplace? I think the issue isn't so much preventing as what we need to be doing to allow people to understand what it is. And that requires that those of us with disabilities need to be identifying more with our disabilities and allowing people in however you feel it's appropriate to understand how your disability may impact your work one way or the other. And people need to get feedback if in fact they're saying things that you or we consider ableist or derogatory or harmful uh, even though the person may not deem it that way. I look at ableism like racism and sexism. So I don't think it should necessarily be like a separate discussion. Mm -hmm. It's how does one create a good work environment where regardless of the difference that someone brings into the workforce, they can feel as though they're not going to be adversely affected. Absolutely. Thank you, Judy. And thank you, Kyla, for the question. If you have a question for Judy, you can send it to us at media at judithhuman.com or on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability 
worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.